Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash Wondery. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything, from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Jensen Beach, Florida. We're about an hour outside of Palm Beach at the Hutchinson Shores Resort, which is actually the first new resort to be built on Hutchinson Island, which is a barrier island in almost two decades. To give ourselves a sense of place is to see how what we're talking about in terms of size and space, not just place, but space that you're finding here in Jensen Beach along the coast. And joining me now, someone who knows a little bit about that because we're right in the middle of Martin County, is Deborah Drum. She's the Ecosystem Restoration and Management Division Manager. Oh, my God. It's a long title. I know. I got it, it though. (laughs) You did. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I mean, when people see the Florida coast, you know, they're seeing the ocean, they're seeing the sand, but they don't know there's so much more than that. I mean, because you've got the lagoon here, too. 
we have the Indian River Lagoon, and we're really in a specially located place. Um, this is Martin County is unique in that it has a lot of different habitat types. We're east of Lake Okeechobee. We have Indian River Lagoon. We're right on the Atlantic shores. Um, we have 26% of our land in, in conservation area, which is... Not a lot of counties can say that. Not a lot of counties can say that. And you're protecting those. And we are. That's our job, is to really work on protecting the environmental resources of Martin County, including the land resources and the water resources. And we do restoration projects to help uh, the com community enjoy and know that we've got stewardship of those public lands. Let's talk about that because you also have wetlands. We have a lot of wetlands in the area. In fact, Martin County is known for its wetland protections that we have here. Um, we have some of the strongest wetland protections in the state of Florida. And what that means is we have a lot of green space and we have a lot of protections of our water resources as a result. And we also have beautiful places to visit. How did you avoid all the development? Well, we have had um, a pretty active community and um, and elected officials that over the years have been very protective. Um, I guess understood really the resources that were worth protecting and making sure that there were regulations in place to keep those areas green. And how do you work with the resorts? Because the, the biggest problem that I have is that so many people will come to a resort and then never leave the resort, right? They have, no, you know, then they have no sense of place. They're, they just know they're on the beach and they've got a pina colada stuck up their nose and that's where they are. So how do you get them out of the resort and work with the resorts to let them know about the environment that's around them? That's a great point. And we really do like to reach out to the visitors that come to our resorts or to any areas along the coast. Um, Florida, when you come to Florida, you really do think about going straight to the beach. Um, we know that that's one of the big draws. And so it is our job to communicate and to let people know that there are so many other places and things to enjoy, especially in our county. Um, we're very much a water-based community and so paddle boarding and kayaking and getting people introduced to waterways that they may not think to go to uh, we do reach out to the such resorts. as such as um, Indian River Lagoon the um, south fork of the St. Lucie River where we're right here on the shores of the St. Lucie and there's um, we just recently got a state paddling trail designation in our area which we're very proud of we worked hard to achieve that a paddling trail a paddling trail there's a statewide paddling trail which in means Florida. it's well marked um, not yet. Uh -huh. We just got the designation. Okay. But yes, we are working towards having it well marked, but more having it well communicated um, that there are um, ecotourism operators in the area. Getting people, getting resorts hooked up with ecotourism operators is a really key piece of how we get people connected with the environment outside the walls of the resort. And you can go horseback riding. You can go horseback. There's equestrian uses. We have many, many trails. Now, if they have horseback paddling, I want to know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, me too. <laughs> that would be interesting. But the bottom line is you have trails, hiking, biking, paddling, that's right, right. multi-use trails all throughout the county. Um, again, when you have 26% of your landmass in conservation, there's a lot of opportunities for hiking, biking, equestrian uses. What about rails to trails? Are you doing some of that stuff too? Um, not so much in this county and other yeah. areas of Florida, but there are um, there there is an East Coast Greenway, and so there is a connection um, in large areas of the county. You know, ten mile spans where you can ride your bike from one part of the county to the other and go through a lot of really great restaurant areas in the process. Restaurant areas. <laughs> Good places to eat. Yeah, I, I, what a coincidence. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, what's the biggest surprise to you about the, the, the land mass and the wetlands that you're working with that people are really not expecting to see? 
Um, I think that people would be surprised to know how much wildlife uses uses these areas, even though you're in Florida and a lot of it feels like it's developed, just how much wildlife really is present in our area. And that is as a result of having a lot of green spaces connected through communities. We see bald eagles, we see, you can see manatees, bald eagles, bobcats, owls, all kinds of different wading birds all in one day in our community. As long as there's not a manatee condo association. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe could, could possibly exist. <laughs> we don't, no, we don't want that. Um, and it's all accessible. It all, yes. And so my program has worked very hard to develop public access facilities, to try to develop areas where the public can access conservation lands safely, have appropriate uses. A lot of those are hiking, equestrian, and biking opportunities. What's your website? www.martin.fl.us. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. of a very interesting museum. It's over 50 years old, the Elliott Museum, and her name is Jennifer Esler. How are you, Jennifer? I'm doing good. How are you, Peter? How are the cars? The cars are great. <laughs> See, that, we got to talk about that. we got to talk about the cars. I mean, I'm, I'm a car nut, okay? Yeah. I have a car. Okay, uh-huh. speaking of museums, I have a car you don't have. What and, car? Uh, see, I knew I'd get your attention. <laughs> this is back in the 80s. I'm in the Philippines interviewing Ferdinand Marcos. I'm sitting in his office in Malacanang Palace, and I look out, and in the Port Cochere, I see something parked there I've never seen before. And I said to the president, excuse me, Mr. President, but what is that? He said, oh, you would want one? I said, well, I'll buy one. So he had one made for me, and I bought it. And I knew it would never pass the EPA restrictions, so I never put an engine in it, because the engines there would never pass muster here. Uh, and I shipped it to America. And when it got here, U.S. Customs went nuts because they'd never seen it. So they called it a Greenberg. And then they seized it. They seized it because they thought I was going into the car business. And they wanted me to crash it into a wall. I said, guys, I'm just collecting one of one. And this was it was seized for four years. I finally got it. I finally got somebody to agree that I wasn't in the car business. I got it out. And now I'll tell you what it is. Do I have your attention, Jennifer? You sure do. Okay. It's a completely handmade, completely stainless steel MacArthur Jeep. My goodness. Right, an Eisenhower Jeep, right, from World War II. And where do you have it now? It's in my garage. And, and I went out and I found a 1953 Willys V8 engine. It fits. And it's there. It runs. I mean, everything on this, on this car is stainless steel, even the roll bar. I mean, everything. And what they did was they took the original frame of a Willys World War II Jeep, right? Spot welded the hell out of it, and then built the, the body around it, all stainless steel. It's crazy. Wow, it sounds crazy. And you don't have that in your museum. We do not have that I in the museum. I knew it. Okay. But, but what do, do you have? We have about 100 other cars. And you know the Elliott Museum is a fun and friendly mu- museum that's only about two miles from this beautiful resort at Hutchinson Shores. We have a lot of different things. We have actually something for every everyone. We have the cars, which are a destination. People. But why, car, why cars there? Well, that's a great question. 
Years ago, there was a historic house here on Hutchinson Island. It was one of 10 houses that was built by the government to give people who were in shipwrecks along the Atlantic coast of Florida a fighting chance of survival. They called them the Houses of Refuge. And the very last remaining House of Refuge was here on Hutchinson Island. What happened is that the women of Stewart, Florida, decided to try to get the county to buy it. And as a result of that, they started an organization to make sure that that historic house was open to the public. And we still manage that house. It's a very interesting site to go to. But a little bit after that, a man by the name of Harmon Elliott donated money to create offices for the new historical organization. And so he started the Elliott Museum named after his father. His father was crazy about bicycles. He, bicycles? Bicycles. He adapted a lot of inventions and had a lot of patents for improvements to bicycles. And for a long time, he edited uh, a Bicycling World magazine. And as a result of his inventions, one of them was... Uh, and uh, he noticed, for example, that people sometimes could balance better, better on four wheels rather than two. But if you've ever <laughs> How had, long did it take him to notice that? I mean, did you ever have a little red wagon? And you yeah, know, when you turned it really fast, it tilted? Yeah. Well, that was because of the way uh, the wheels were turning in the same plane rather than in separate planes on the front. So he invented a steering knuckle and a kingpin that allowed the wheels to turn in a separate plane. And as a result of that, it allowed us to have four-wheeled cars, the steering mechanism in our cars. So starting with the patents from Sterling Elliott by his son, a building was created to focus on his inventions and also to highlight local history. And So, okay, we, we've been talking about cars. But mm -hmm. You have bicycles there, too? We have bicycles. We have boats. We have local history. We have a huge Americana collection. We have boat models. Okay, let me, let me start with bicycles for a second. Yeah. Because that was where he started, right? Mm -hmm. What's the craziest bicycle you have there? Uh, the craziest bicycle we have is um, a, a bone shaker, and it's a bicycle that doesn't have any springs, and it's made out of cast iron. It's very, very heavy. So that's one of the craziest bicycles we have. Has anybody ridden it? Nobody in our staff has ridden it for a very long while. <laughs> but somebody once did and said never somebody again. Somebody once did, And absolutely. said never again. And it was part of the improvements that Harmon Elliott made to the bicycles that people were riding. So basically not one of his best inventions. Well, I'm not sure that was his invention. He just improved he, on he improved it. improved on it for uh, a variety of reasons. So when you get to our car collection, that's why we have cars. In fact, uh, we have an exhibit that shows how we decided how to power our cars. We have a Stanley steamer, and we have a Detroit electric from... Uh, 1914. Uh, you know who else has a Stanley Steamer? Jay Leno. I know he does. Yeah. I've seen him ride and he ride on it on videos as well. Yeah. Well, Harmon Elliott's neighbors were the Stanley brothers up in Massachusetts. So he had a connection. So he had a connection. And actually, he sold that patent to the steering knuckle and kingpin to them. They put it into their Stanley Steamers. And the steamer we have actually belonged to Sterling Elliott. So that's kind of fun. Okay, got Stanley <laughs> Steamer. Keep going. Right. We've got a 1903 um, Olds. We've got a Cadillac. We've got um, a model of the very first uh, auto uh, that was created by Benz. Uh, and we've also got a, a lot of Model A's that were donated uh, to us several years ago, the, probably the largest collection of Model A commercial vehicles that you can see. We even have some more modern cars that you can see. Um, we have a 2009 beautiful Rolls-Royce, as well as uh, um, one from the 1920s that you can see. And we have a tractor trailer that's a Model A. We have some uh, Model T's. We have a tow truck. And uh, do they all Model work? A. 
A lot of them work. If they're inside the building, we pull their batteries and we empty it of all of the fluids so that it's not a fire hazard. But we also have a working garage and we take a lot of the vehicles to parades and car shows and things like that. So people can come to the museum, mm -hmm. see the cars. Can they ride in them at all, ever? Not really, uh, but if you come on... Not if I beg? Not if you beg. <laughs> <laughs> you might be able to make an exception. Ah, I wonder about everybody else. It can't just be me. Every Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, our um, car curator, John Giltonen, will take a special tour of the galleries and also take people back to the garage to show you what the guys are working on. And we have a team of volunteers that help us restore and keep the cars running. Well, I'm always fascinated by cars because I try to show my friends who don't understand these things anymore what a straight eight looks like. Yeah, okay. Nobody knows what a straight eight. They know a V8, but they don't know a straight eight. Because that's, that's how they started. Yeah, exactly. I know. Amazing. Exactly. What would be your craziest car? Um, my favorite car is um, what is a Model A ambulance that was converted to a camper. So there's linoleum in the back of it, there's built-in cabinets, there's curtains on the windows, and one of the sides was bumped out to be a stove, a wood stove. So it's kind of a mess, and the um, <laughs> car people who are real um, sticklers for a good condition don't like it because it's in an original condition. Uh, but it's my favorite one because of the history that it tells. And it tells a story. It tells a story. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. And for those of you who think that uh, uh, the history of Florida starts and ends with the uh, resorts at the beach, I have news for you. <laughs> it doesn't. And joining me now is a, is a legend here in these here parts. Joseph Crankshaw, author, historian, and your full name, sir, is? Joseph Clarence Crankshaw III. Of course. So you've been around for a while. Um, as of today, about 87 years. <laughs> so you've seen all the changes, too. I've seen some of them. <laughs> for people who have never been here before, who are trying to get a sense of place as to where we are, describe where we are. Well, Jensen Beach is an unincorporated community in Martin County, Florida, which is midway up the peninsula of Florida. If you look at Florida and you see Cape Canaveral, which is where they make the launches from, we're about 70 miles south of there on the ocean. And uh, this is one of the oldest places in the state of Florida. When Florida, when the Spanish came to Florida to drive out the French, uh, this is one of the places they came. Uh, Don Pedro Menendez de Avalis, who was the governor of Florida, was appointed to come to Florida and drive the Spanish out of uh, Saint the St. Augustine area, which he did, and in the process massacred most of the Spaniards that were there. No, I mean most of the French, I'm sorry. Yeah. And... Um, those that didn't get massacred fled south, and they came down this way, and they passed Cape Canaveral, and they were looking to find a place they could build a boat so they could get back to Europe. But Menendez pursued them, and when he found them, they thought that they were going to all be executed, but they weren't, because by now he had more, more Spaniards than there were French, and he didn't have to fear them. 
So he he took them in control, and they came south, and uh, he he left them, and he went to Cuba to get supplies and bring back to keep them going. And the French and the Spanish mutinied, and uh, they came on south, and they they came down the coast, which was actually the hardest way to come, but they didn't know that. Of course not. And uh, they got down here to the St. Lucie River, which is just to the very south of us now, where we are, and um, they couldn't get across the river. Menendez's officers had all the boats up, up above what is now Vero uh, Beach, and they came south to uh, 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 find the mutineers, and when they did, they pointed out to the mutineers that uh, only the officers had the boats and therefore could go out into the river. And that was about to be very important for them because the natives had gotten very upset and they were going to uh, uh, eradicate all these foreigners. And since the ratio of natives to uh, uh, colonists was about a hundred to one. <laughs> Not good odds. No. They decided that they were all going to pledge loyalty to the king again and that the Spaniards would all give their oath not to try to escape. And they were all loaded on boats and carried south to Jupiter Inlet, which is about, I guess, 20 miles from here. Right. And that's where Burt Reynolds, no, I'm kidding, no. No, no. <laughs> Opened up the dinner theater and life continued. No, I'm kidding, no. No, no. Hey, you know, that's almost the way people think about it. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they came down there and Menendez came back and he had supplies for them and he took them all back to St. Augustine and waited till they could make a deal to repatriate the French prisoners. That they had. And the interesting thing about St. Augustine is it's one of Florida's oldest, oldest, oldest cities. It's not one of Florida's oldest. It is Florida's oldest. It's the United States' oldest. Exactly. We've been speaking to... The full name again is Joseph... Clarence. Clarence Crankshaw Third. Yes, but most people call me Joe. <laughs> Thanks for getting me to that point. So... Jensen Beach as an unincorporated area, when did it really start? Well, it's been incorporated once before. Um, the, uh, it did not be, get started until well after uh, World War I. The, uh, there had been pioneer app, pineapple growers here. Once this area, which you look out the window now and you see palm trees, pal palmetto trees and all that, once this area was mostly pineapple plants, this was the, the pineapple center of, of the world. And this is the oldest community in Martin County. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the, the only thing older in Martin County is just down the beach here at the House of Refuge Museum. And that, that, that was what the first building that was built on the county. And it's in actually in the confines of Jensen Beach, although Stewart and Jensen Beach battle over it. And you've been actually here since, what, 1958? Well, yeah, I didn't, it wasn't continuously, but I've been here that long. What's the biggest change you've seen? People. Explain. When I came here in 1958, 
I was one of eight single men in all of Martin County. Well, do I want your life or what? And <laughs> there, there are around 400 single women. They were nurses and uh, uh, school teachers and shopkeepers and clerks and everything like that. So what you're trying to tell me, Joe, is you did okay. No, it's worth your life to walk down the beach. <laughs> You didn't want to show any interest in anyone or you'd be smothered, you know. I hate when that happens. Well, it, when it really happens to you, you do. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not like you're a human being. You're just a piece of meat hanging up there. <laughs> and the dogs are snapping at you. But wait, but you stayed. No, I didn't stay. I, I stayed here for about four years. All right, so for four years... The piece of meat reference notwithstanding, you had a good time. I had a busy time. I, <laughs> I worked. I worked for the. Uh, I worked for the Stewart News, and uh, we were the. Uh, we were a weekly paper, which our publisher said was the only daily in Florida that came out once a week. Yeah, because people are too busy smothering you. Uh, no, they. Too busy trying to get away from me after they found out we were in the expo say business, <laughs> and um, the uh, the town began to grow, but not very fast. Uh, when I was here on a Wednesday afternoon, you could walk down the main street in Stewart or down uh, the main street here in Jensen Beach, and and not meet a soul. So where were all of these people? Because there were about 25,000 people in Martin County. They were over here on the beach, or they were out fishing, they were out hunting. Uh, they were down in West Palm Beach where everybody went because that was the center of activity. The big deal was to go down there to the movie and then to uh, uh, the restaurant and then to come back up. and. That was, and they would always go in huge groups for safety. Uh, when there's only four single guys, uh, <laughs> you need to, you need safety in numbers, and so we always made sure that that there were at least two of us together, and there were. You mean you were going there to be protected from the women? Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, too much of a good thing is too much, and. Uh, and so, uh, but ladies and gentlemen, Joe Crankshaw lived to tell the story. Oh yeah! In fact, I married one of them. There we go. You buried the lead. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I don't know if that was the lead or not, but, <laughs> but uh, everybody, all the women knew that you were single, and and they would invite you to dinner and to lunch. On Sunday, you would eat in about two different places, and um, they uh, would ask you how you were going. And we, so, so the bottom line here is your dance card was filled, and you ate a lot. Yes, and uh, but eventually the women got tired of that, and they decided it was time for me to settle down. And so you did, with one of them. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go 
Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. As I said earlier in the show, this is the first new resort, the Hutchinson Resort, um, that has Hutchinson Shores Resort that's been built on this barrier island in two decades. It's, it's, it's a brand new deal, and uh, they've done a great job. Uh, one of the ways they've done a good job is, is food. And, and one of the things that I always look for, especially if you're on the ocean, you know, you know you're going to get seafood. So the question is, how are you going to get it? And then what are they going to do with the other dishes for those people who don't eat seafood? I'm just the other way. I don't eat meat, so I love the seafood. Um, and joining me now is the executive chef from the Hutchinson Shores Resort and Spa. i got to say that, too. Uh, Michael Volger, how are you, sir? Doing great. How are you? Now, you're, you're, you're a graduate of Disney. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I grew up going to either Disneyland in California or Disney World in Florida, let's be honest, for many, many years, the food sucked. Disney's food really ate the big one. And then about 20 years ago, when they, oh, I'm, I'm dating myself, it may have even been older than that, but about they made the change about 20 years ago at the Contemporary Resort in, at Disney, Disney World, the food suddenly got so much better. Oh, my God. And you were coming up through that time. That's right. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to work at the Grand Floridian where um, we had the uh, Victorian Alberts upstairs. The menu changed every day, so I got an opportunity to work with some of the best chefs uh, that worked at Disney. And you're also an alumnus of Wolfgang Puck. Yeah, opened the, opened the Wolfgang Pucks out there as well. And um, also worked at the Swan Hotel, the Western Swan Hotel. But you, you know, these are big hotels. Yes. Uh, you know, this is a smaller hotel where yes, we are right yes, now, yes. And, which means you can, you can do more. Right. I mean, when you're when you're trying to do three thousand meals a day, it's a little bit differently than doing a couple of hundred. Yeah, it's a lot a lot easier to control the the product here. Exactly. So. I mean, yes, there's still the, the staple. The thing that always drives me nuts about Disney is there are people are walking out with their turkey turkey drumsticks. Those they're weapons. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they're weapons. I mean, there's a security issue there. <laughs> it's not just food, right? Right. But what did you learn from both Disney and Wolfgang Puck that you've been able to apply here? Well, uh, from Wolfgang Puck, everything was fresh. Uh, with no cans, everything was fresh produce, made fresh in, in the house every day. Um, the philosophy of Wolfgang was uh, to go out and, and be uh, in front of the guests. Don't hide in the back in the kitchen. So open kitchen and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, going out and shaking hands and greeting, greeting guests and finding out what, what it is that they liked about the food. Well, you just brought up my favorite topic. It's called having a conversation. We've lost that art in this country. You know, it's 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 one thing to be a superstar chef. It's one thing to be in the kitchen, but if you don't have a conversation with your with, with your guests, that's part of the hospitality operation. You're never going to know if you're doing anything right. That's right. That's right. You get a lot of good feedback, and uh, you know, especially around here, we got a lot of regular customers that come in quite often, and they, they let us know what they like about the food, what they're looking for, and also what they don't like. That's right. All right. So let me, I always ask this to every chef, so you're no exception. Here it comes. Especially since this is a relatively new resort. I mean, right? You just opened. Right, right. So what's the one thing that you put on your menu, you know, when you first started here, saying, man, people are going to love this, and it tanked totally. And then the second question is, what's the one thing you felt you were forced to put on the menu because no one's going to like this, and it, like, went through the roof and people can't get enough of it? Uh, I think the, um, the, the one that I, that I thought was going to go well that, that, didn't, that didn't go as well was the clams, clam appetizer. I thought more people Wait a be- second. Hold on. What, I ate at your restaurant last okay. night. What did I order? You ordered clams. 
So, you know, I didn't think it was going to go over that well. You, you're Not only did I order clams, I ordered two of them. Linguini with clams. Yeah. So that sells well. But the appetizer, I didn't. I felt like uh, it was really going to go off. And I think people in this area are more used to the mussel appetizer. Okay. So, uh, you know, we'll get some people that, that order the, the clams, uh, linguini vongole, which you ordered. But uh, the appetizer, not as much as I thought. All right. And what's the one item you figured this is going to eat it and it went through the roof? Well, we, we uh, put a short rib grilled cheese on the, on the lunch menu. And uh, I, I made a Carolina barbecue sauce. And uh, I thought, we will sell a few of these. And I cannot keep up with the short rib. It's amazing. I'm cooking two, three It sounds like a bad country western song. I can't keep up with the, the short, short rib. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really sold. It's really taken off. So Now, the, the one thing you had last night that I have to tell you is it, I ordered it as a side dish. It's the risotto with the corn. Right, right. So we do a roasted corn risotto with the sweet shrimp, and we uh, serve that with our uh, pan-seared scallops. Now, where does the chef like to eat in Jensen Beach? Um, there's a couple restaurants uh, in Stewart. Uh, as far as Jensen Beach, is kind of limited. But, um, but Stewart's not that far away. Yeah, no, it's a couple minutes away. So the, the district table is a nice restaurant. And what do you order there? Um they, I usually get the fried chicken. They got a great fried chicken uh, and a biscuit, and uh, it's really good. They got a great burger. The Gaffer downtown, they got excellent food down there as well. That's got, if it's a Gaffer, it's got to be seafood. Yeah, the Gaffer, and uh, they, they do a great tuna pokey appetizer. I go there and, and get that at what the What makes a great tuna pokey? I think uh, it's got to be the right blend of sauce for that ponzu that you're putting and the, and the combination. So, you know, for our pokey, we, we, we combine it with a, an avocado salsa. And the two match very well together. And a little, a little Does it have a little oil. bit of a kick to it? A little kick, a little, little uh, spice in there, and, um, you know, fresh lime juice and uh, rice wine vinegar, soy sauce. You know, I'm one of those guys who's, who suddenly discovered the fact that most restaurants aren't really using real wasabi. Yeah, they use a, they use a powder. It's a, more of a mustard powder. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get it. You can get it. It's a, it's a root, and uh, it's uh, pretty expensive, hard to, hard to find. Not really grown uh, locally in the States. Well, except when I think Florida, I'm not thinking wasabi. Right, yeah. right. But you can get it. You can get it, yeah, absolutely. Got some great specialty uh, purveyors here that can get you anything you want. So, Well, that's the cool thing about living in this in this era right now. You can source everything. Absolutely. And you're working with local producers, too? Yes, I am, yeah. There's a, a couple local uh, produce companies here. For the tomatoes? Tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, uh, a lot of my baby vegetables, fresh herbs, that kind of stuff. What about the adult vegetables? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's like baby leaks. Whatever happened to the adult leaks? Yeah, yeah. Just thought I'd mention yeah. that. <laughs> I've never seen anything on the menu saying, and by the way, they always pronounce it the same way, like they're bad French guys. The baby leaks. Yeah. What, what, I mean, what happened to the adult leaks? Are they on some remote island somewhere? Have you seen an adult leak? Yes, yes. We use, we use the leaks to, as well sometimes. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Joining me now, the executive director of the Florida Oceanographic Society. I just love that title, Oceanographic <laughs> Society. Mark Perry, how are you, sir? Yeah, good there. Thank you. For your yeah, you got it. Now, people, you know, I'm a, I'm probably am a member of so many different societies. <laughs> um, I, I often do it just because it sounds cool, because I get their magazines or I get their newsletters. Uh, but more importantly than that, 
I want to be able to participate. I want to be able to come to a location and get up close and personal, if you will. Right. And you guys can do that. Right, 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 Peter. We right here on Hutchinson Island have a coastal center that has regional aquariums and nature trails, touch tanks, and we have a lot of different activities where volunteers can get actually hands-on experience at either restoration of uh, habitats like seagrass and oyster reefs and different kinds of things like that. So, you know, you mentioned touch tanks. I yeah. remember when they opened up the Monterey Bay Aquarium, mm. it was like cutting edge because you could actually go there and touch fish. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's that's what the experience is. And when I see a little kid get over the fear of, oh, my gosh, it's going to bite me or, or hurt me, and they actually touch a hermit crab and it's tickling them up, they go, wow, what does it eat? Where does it live? How can I protect it? And that's what's really important to me. Well, I'm a big fan of, for lack of a better term, participatory travel. I, mean, I, I like people, I, I like to get up close and personal as opposed to like the old days of the Museum of Natural History where you had to stand 50 feet back from a dinosaur and you couldn't touch it. You couldn't know? touch it, right? Yeah. No, we want to get people's hands on. They get to experience even feeding stingrays in our stingray feeding program. They get to see sea turtles and sharks and all kinds of other animals there. What's the, what's the program that you started that, that you'd say is, is really cutting edge? Well, I think I think it's the restoration of habitats that are here in our community. Um, right inside the Barrier Island, we have these uh, the incredible. And we're on a Barrier River. Island now. That's correct. We're sitting right between the Atlantic Ocean on one side and the uh, the Indian River Lagoon on the other. And I have to tell everybody, I live on a Barrier Island in New York, so I understand yeah. how fragile it is. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't protect it. You not only lose the island, but the other communities suffer greatly because there's a reason why it's called a barrier island. It's protecting. So we, um, one of the in interesting programs is we take beach walks. We take people on beach walks, talk about the dune plants, the different things that live along the beach face, the sea turtle nesting that goes on here. It's incredible. But then we also collect fragments of the seagrass. The sea turtle nesting, in. when is that yep. really happening? That's in the summer months. So right. a lot of people aren't here during the summer months. Which is exactly when June, you want to come. I'm, look, right. I, I'm a huge fan of, of what, the, what people otherwise known as the off-season. Because if you look at the history of the words off-season, it was started by people in New York who were freezing their you-know-what's off in February and decided they had to go to the Caribbean then. Then. What's wrong with going to the Caribbean in July? I don't get it. That's I mean, that's exactly what I want to go because, yeah, the thermometer might be six degrees hotter, but... Nobody's there. You own it. Right. You have better service. You right. have better deals. You have a better experience. That's right. That's right. So if you come in the summer months, we have sea turtles that come ashore at night. Uh, the females come up. They dig their hole. They Are lay you doing the this eggs. with infrared lights? Well, we do program, and yeah. then we have scouts out looking for the, the turtle, and once she starts her nest, then we approach very carefully from behind, and you can watch the whole process, and it's really very experiential. It's really interesting, and then you really get a sense out of the survivability of one out of a thousand of these animals uh, to maturity. So it's a, it's a great, and we are one of the highest nesting beaches in the Western Hemisphere right here in, in now, Hutchinson Island. Now, you grew up on the water. I did. Me mm -hmm. too. I mean, and I know you like to boast you spend more time on, on water than you spend on land. I like to say the same thing. Yeah. Yep. How do you do that now? Well, you know, now is a more kind of administration and all that kind of more meetings and more <laughs> conferences and phone calls. No, and all you that. have the meetings yes, on the yes, boat. That is what I've learned in the recent <laughs> years. I say, okay, come on up, and we're going to go take a, a hands-on look at what we're doing out in restoration of the habitats and the estuary and the lagoon and that kind of thing. So, Somebody visiting this resort, mm -hmm. for example, can they come and get working with you on that restoration yeah, work? Absolutely. It's, How do they do that? You know, I mean, it's 
more or less ecotourism in a way, but it's the I, idea I don't want to use the word ecotourism because no, it's misused all it the is. time. But it's a really uh, uh, an experiential process. It's not coming just to look at the aquariums and, and the animals and the exhibits that we have and take the nature trails. It's actually doing something. Like? So you're actually going to be able to bag some oyster shells so we can plant that out into yeah, the Yeah, you know, people are finally getting getting hip on yeah. oyster shells. They're doing a big project in New York on this with yeah. all the restaurants. Right. They're collecting all the oyster shells right and, and putting them back in. We do that right here, about 11 different restaurants locally. Once a week, we pick up all these buckets. They've 25 uh 25 tons of material did not go to the landfill we it got recycled as recycled shell into habitats like oyster reefs okay now explain it because people uh -huh. have have yeah. a, a misunderstanding yeah. if you will you take an oyster shell and you put it back in it doesn't grow yeah, another that's, oyster that's a good point i'm glad you brought that yeah. up because what we have in our hatchery we have a hatchery on site a shellfish hatchery which has the brood stock from the native uh habitat here of about 60 animals so when we can spawn them we raise the water temperature place off music lights and everything they spawn <laughs> because they think it's springtime and now we've got you just started a rumor you're not right, playing right, soft right, music right. 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 Okay. we got millions of eyed larvae that we can now set onto those shells so as we set them onto the shells now they're attached and they're going to start to grow other oysters right on those shells so the oyster prefers other oysters as a settling point to begin to grow. So they're that's hitchhikers. Why they, yeah, so they grow in big clusters and clumps naturally, so you have to break them all apart to get individuals, but that's what happens. So we take that recycled shell, put it out there, and then inoculate that reef with millions of eyed larvae to attach to it, and now we've produced a living oyster reef right there. See, what would be great mm -hmm. is to work with the restaurant so that when you're finished eating the oysters, you take the guests immediately over to see exactly <laughs> where the show no, seriously, <laughs> right. to right. see exactly what they've contributed to. Right, right. Because otherwise, if you can't connect the dots, people don't right. get it. Well, if they get a dozen oysters, they get a, a free coupon to come out to $2 off or whatever to the center. So they can actually see that if they're here in the Oh, area. they really get yeah, that? they come over oh, that's there. that's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the incentive to help, you know, help help the environment at the same time you're having a good, tasty dish. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, it's, it's the cycle of life. <laughs> uh, but here's my other question. When people come here, they don't necessarily have a great sense of place. Uh, they don't often even leave the resort. So how do you get them out there? Well, it's a, that's a challenge. It is a challenge because sometimes they want just certain part. They want to just be on the beach or they just want to do this. So the thing is that so you have to start to the pina colada recycling there program. You go. That would be helpful. You know. <laughs> the pina colada recycling. Yeah, right, yeah. You, you drink a pina colada, you get a free pass. You come on. That's it. Yeah. But, but seriously, are you working with the hotels oh, like, yes. like Hutchinson Shores uh, to get oh, people yes. out there? Oh, yes. We come down. Actually, we've got a plan to do. We've got programs that we do at the hotels and resorts and places up and down the island and the condo association. So even if you're, you know, you come visit the area, you'll probably catch one of our programs that we're doing in the hotel area so that they understand, hey, we're right down the road. You can come down. It's come down and really get an experience of, of what this whole sense of place is rather than just stay here in your hotel and your resort. I'm not that they're a great place. It's a wonderful amenity right here on the ocean. Of course. And the lagoon. But come on down. You've got lots to experience within just a mile or so of here that's that's what's great what's the website it's uh www.floridaocean.org floridaocean.org
Not bad. Not bad. And if you're really nice, Mark will figure out an excuse to get you on a boat. Yes. <laughs> I would love to do that. So, uh, Me too. We'll find an experience, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mark Perry, the executive director of the Florida Oceanographic Society. You're open how many days a week? We're open seven days a week. Um, you know, Monday through Saturday is 10 to 5, and on Sunday from 12 to 4. And you go hang out. Yeah, go come on and hang out. It's B Y O O. You know what that stands for? What's that? Bring your own oysters. There you go. Bring your own oysters. <laughs> Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. My next guest, well, basically grew up around here. Uh, he's a third-generation guy here from the what they call the Treasure Coast. And uh, he's got the best name for an outdoors columnist I've ever heard, Ed Killer. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> you still talk to me after that? Oh, sure. That's fine. Th- thanks for inviting me. All right. Now, most of my friends have not been here. They know, they know where Florida is, maybe. Americans are not too geographically savvy. But where are we? Well, uh, I guess the best way to describe it, we always use West Palm Beach uh, as, a, as a point of reference. So we're about 45 minutes north of West Palm, about 45 miles north of West Palm Beach. Right. And what makes this place so different in terms of outdoors? Because there's tons of coastline in Florida. I'll tell you, um, it, one thing that makes it fantastic is we're kind of like a blending area for the subtropics and the tropics. So when you look at that in a standpoint of like marine biology, for instance, or, or even bird life or other kinds of uh, animal life, we get things that you can experience in the tropics, like animals and fish that you could find down there. But you also get uh, animals and fish that you can experience through the mid-Atlantic states as well. So we, you get both kinds here, which makes it kind of separate from... If you from go, the Everglades. Well, from the Everglades or Miami, where you, you get more of a tropical feel, or from, say, the Cocoa Beach area, where you get more of a mid-Atlantic feel or that kind of a feel. So it's, it's kind of a unique, unique place on the planet because of its where it is uh, in reference to, say, the equator or the tropic of... I mean, look, you, you, you can dive here, you can surf here, but then there's the wildlife. And, and, and you know, the wildlife and the fishing, and, and that's one reason, that's one way that the history of this town was kind of built on its fishing. And uh, first, you know, the commercial fishing aspect of it where uh, back around, you know, t- uh, turn of the century in 1900, that's where commercial fishing kind of began in this area, and that was one of the first kind of staples of business that crew would And what were they fishing for? Well, mostly bluefish, Spanish mackerel, uh, things that you could catch inshore or near shore. Uh, other types of fish would be like uh, mullet and stuff like that. And those were things that you could, you could ice down or salt down really easily, put them on rail cars as the railroad extended through this area. In the old days when there north. was a railroad exactly. through this area. And, uh, and you know, there still is, but it, yeah, it's a kind of tra- taken on a little bit of a different feel uh, right. over the years. But certainly that's, what, that's how this area was sort of uh, the first pioneers here. And then agriculture was, was something that followed real quick, you know, right, quickly after that. We're talking to Ed yeah. Kilgore, the outdoors columnist for Treasure Coast Newspapers and the USA Today Network. Ed, you're a surfer? Uh, I grew up surfing right here. I can see where I grew up surfing. My first surfing experiences were, were within sight of where we are right now. And how was the break? Oh, it's fantastic. It's, uh, it's, it's, this is a time of year which is really best for surfing is the fall and then into the wintertime because that's when we get most of our wave action. Um, you get uh, any of the storms, like the tropical storms that move up the coast, the ones that don't hit us directly, as they pass by, uh, usually if they're about 1,000 miles out, like once they get up there around the Hatteras area, we get a wave break that comes in that is not blocked by the islands of the Bahamas. So anything east of the Bahamas, we don't get that wave action. Anything north of that, we do get the wave action. So that's what makes you know, September, October, November into January, February probably the best time to surf in this area. 
So you get a you get a surprisingly nice break here. So it could be you know six seven foot on a regular basis. You get probably two or three days a week where you, you can experience six or seven that. foot is is good. It's good. That's a good wave. It's a nice pretty wave. And then when the winds shift to be from from onshore or from uh, actually offshore, that's when the wave cleans up really nicely. The onshore winds it kind of messes the wave up, but offshore is when it really makes it nice. All right. So here's my stupid question. So. When I was surfing on the East Coast, and that's up in New York, not known necessarily for great surfing, but we do get some surf out there off, right. off the coast of Long Island. You get creamed by the wave. You stay down for 15 seconds. You come up. You try that in the North Shore of Hawaii. You don't come up. That's right. Yeah, what about here? Uh, here it's not that bad. Uh, here you've got nice sandy shores. You got, you've got uh, reef lines that run parallel to the beach that create some of that break. So uh, there's, it just depends on It's very spot specific when it comes to that. So there's certain places like that you don't have to worry about it. So it's a good yeah. place to learn. Oh, it's a fantastic place to learn. Yeah, it's excellent. Because you're not going to get killed. Right, right. And then and you usually have a little bit of going on during the summer. That's when usually most of your kids will learn how to how But to it's get, calmer get, in the summer. It's way, very calm, but that's when that's when you can work on those. As, as a six, seven, eight-year-old kid, that's when you can work on those board moves and getting up on the board because you're smaller, lighter, a smaller wave can move you. You know, a guy my size these yeah, days. Well, I can, I, I'm almost, this is radio, I'm but getting, you're a big guy. <laughs> I can't. I can't get in the water anymore. I'm, there's almost no wave around here that can. What move about stand-up so. paddleboarding? Oh, we that thing that is, you get up on. Well, that's to, yes, but that's taken off. I yeah. mean, that, talking about an activity that's really taken off in this area. You know, last you know, four or five years, we actually have like guys in this area now that are actually uh, you know, fully supporting themselves by by shaping boards, making paddle boards for stand-up paddleboarding. And it's such a huge activity. We've got guys that have done things like taking ex expeditions around all the waters in Florida. We've got guys around here that are, like I said, making their own boards. So it's really kind of a, 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 an activity that's really gone, gone big. And then, of course, we've got fishing from paddle boards, which has really become the big craze. Lately. Okay, I have a stupid question. What do you do with the fish once you catch it? Well, you, there's a couple things. Some guys have stringers. Some guys have an have a actual have a cooler on board where they put the fish in there. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what they're doing with them. I go back to the yeah. old Hemingway book, The Old Man on the Sea. You catch the fish, now you've got the bigger problem. Well, you do, and, and there's certainly plenty of, uh, plenty of sharks in the water here. So I've been talking to Ed Killer, the outdoors columnist for Treasure Coast Newspapers and the USA Today Network, all about fishing from a Santa battle board <laughs> here in Jensen Beach. What have you caught? What have I caught? Yeah. Well, from a stand-up puddle? Yeah. Board, I wanna... but, well, I've caught snook, redfish, uh, trout. A lot of things you can catch right here in the Indian River Lagoon, which uh, that's one thing that makes this, this area special also, Peter, is the fact that you've got the, the Indian River Lagoon right next to the Atlantic Ocean, literally separated by a barrier island that we're on right now. And uh, the lagoon itself is 156 miles long. It stretches from about Jupiter all the way up to New Smyrna Beach. That's huge. So, yes, yeah, so it goes through this whole area. But again, because of its position on the planet, it's a, it's a nursery habitat for you know, millions of fish and thousands of other kinds of organisms. And so we have a really well-supported game fish population here in the lagoon. It's really it averages about four feet in depth, the whole lagoon itself. So it's not a very deep So you're not going deep-sea fishing. You're just fishing now in the right lagoon. Right here, I mean, that's, what, that's one reason why it lends itself to things like kayak fishing, stand-up paddleboard fishing, fishing with the, uh, what we call technical polling skips, you know, flats boats that can float in like 12 inches of water. Right, very, so very shallow drift. Yeah, so yeah. It's a, it, it offers a sight-casting opportunity, which is very exciting. That's one reason why stand-up paddleboard fishing is so popular is because of your, where you're standing on the board rather than kayak fishing where you're sitting down. You can actually you, see it. Yeah, you can see it. You're six feet above the water or five feet above the water. You can see where the fish are, so you can make a nice uh, cast before you spook the fish. And that way you can get a bite. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting way to fish. And sail fishing? Well, this area is called the Sailfish Cap of the World. And we just completed a tournament called the Pelican Yacht Club's Invitational Billfish Tournament. 
It was the 38th year they had it. They just wrapped it up on Saturday, fishing right out front of here, right out right in front of Hudson Shores uh, Resort here. And though a group of 25 boats caught and released 373 sailfish in four days. Do they tag them too or no? Well, they don't tag these. But uh, what they'll do is, uh, you know, they basically are keeping scores based on, on how many you catch in a day. So the top boat had like 30 fish, which was really a tremendous uh, experience for fishing uh, for that kind of a fish. You know, sailfish is a very large fish. It swims extremely fast. Uh, it's, again, a situation where most of these fish were hooked uh, with the angler seeing the fish come in on the bait. So that's one thing that makes it very exciting. The fishing we do here is mostly what they call dead bait trolling. So they're the boats I, are. I've had dates like that. I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, sorry, sorry. Yeah. No. Well, anyway, but you know, you've got a, a large boat and you're fishing fairly rough seas usually when the sailfish action here is at its best. And then what they do is they keep the boat in gear. They're moving the boat. The, tr the bait is moving. You're using a small ballyhoo, maybe. So they're going maybe two, three knots, and well, maybe a little far, maybe four or five knots. Okay. But they're but it's about uh, they're using a bait that's maybe 12 inches long. It's called a ballyhoo. It's got a single hook in it, and when the sailfish comes in, the sailfish is very excited and he's lit up. He's purple and blue and silver and all these different colors, and as he comes in to to take the bait. You drop the bait back with using like conventional reels, like the reels that are on the old the, pens. Right, exactly. Like exactly. So you, you're using very light tackle too, like 15 to 20 pound test, and you drop back the the bait to the fish. Fish grabs it and takes off. And then and, it's, and then it's how long you right, fight the fish. Right. And so and a lot of these fish that they caught over the last couple of days were caught in multiple numbers. So they would have like a pack of fish. They call them like wolf packs. These fish come up. Um, sometimes they call them like a covey, like quail. They'll come up in the groups of three or four at a time to come into one of these baits. So it's very exciting in the cockpit. You can imagine three or four anglers all hooked up to sailfish at the same time. You know, these uh, million-dollar boats backing down on them to try to shorten the release time it takes for you to reel the fish in all and right, let but it the, go. But, but the cool thing is, at least for me, it's catch and release. It's all release. Yep. All these fish are released. Nobody's mounting these fish. No, no. And, and, and that's one of the great things. This started in the 80s where you started this culture of uh, sport fishermen that realized that they didn't need to kill the fish anymore for these these big trophy catches. So a lot of marlin now are released, a lot of uh, spearfish, a lot of a lot of your billfish, uh, sailfish, of course, and a lot of these are released. And these experts that uh, that own these companies that do mounts, they can reproduce your catch with a good photo and a, oh, couple, really? a couple measurements. Yes. Yeah, so they so basically you can lie. You <laughs> Well, you Come see, on. Lie you, is such a, can, it's such a strong word, Peter. Not I, I, when it comes to fishing. No. <laughs> no you can lie like you can't believe. I mean, when, when, is a, when is a lie a fish story and when is a fish story a lie, right? I think so. that it's one and the same. <laughs> it's, it's not like, an oxymoron. Right. No, it's, not, it's the real, it's, it's redundant. A, it's a synonym, right. It really is. <laughs> right. So basically, I can come down here to Jensen Beach, just go to a, one of these operations and say, Tell me that I caught this, make the <laughs> right, and mount it, and, and I got it. You know, uh, he's not going to ask any questions. Let me just tell you that, especially if you check clear. So, <laughs> right, don't fish, don't tell. Right. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. 
It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Always on the go? Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts.